Hello, and welcome to another combined episode of the Silver Screen Superheroes podcast and the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament podcast, as provided and hosted through Bureau 42. I am your host, Alex Case, and this time we are taking a look at Blade. This film stars Wesley Snipes and is directed by Stephen Norrington and came out in 1998. Also written by David S. Goyer and in the supporting cast features Stephen Dorff as the film's antagonist Deacon Frost, Chris Christopherson as Blade's mentor figure Whistler, and, and I'm going to mangle this name, I apologize, Bush White, right, as Karen, the main supporting character and the audience perspective character. I should mention, not Blade's love interest. Also features a significant supporting role by Udo Kier, German, German actor, as the character of Dragonetti. The character of Blade, brief bit of background, was introduced in the comic Tomb of Dracula by Marvel. He was a, it was from the very beginning, an African-American character and a half-vampire, though he was known at the time because he used wooden throwing knives to slay vampires and attack vampires, as opposed to the tactics used here. He was part of a supporting group of characters who were teamed up with the descendant of Abraham Van Helsing, Rachel Van Helsing, along with a group of vampires, um, vampire hunters who worked with her, also featured um, Quincy Harker, the son of Jonathan Harker, from the original Dracula story. And Blade was introduced in the 70s, and also part of the thing of note is Blade in the original comic was British, born in London, England. So, the film itself came out, or kind of became to be, due to Marvel's bankruptcy. The uh, When Marvel was filing for bankruptcy, they sold off, or sold out, sold a bunch of their rights to make their characters into films, as... Blaine has gone in, into the past, keeping certain characters and groups of characters together so they would work better coherently as a film. For example, the X group together, the mutants, as one group, trying to keep the members of the Avengers, particularly the founding members, together as a group. And Blade went to New Line Cinema. Marvel had originally kind of tried to get the um, film together from the beginning in 1992, with the plan being for rapper LL Cool J to play the lead role. But, for various reasons, that fell apart. And ultimately, by 1996, we had the film being developed in New Line Cinema, with Wesley Snipes in the lead role. There were three main options that executives at New Line had in mind. Snipes, Denzel Washington, and Lawrence Fishburne. I think of the three, Snipes is probably the best pick at the time. Because Snipes is already a martial artist, and coming to the role as a martial artist. And while Fishburne did some very good work in the fight scenes for The Matrix, it's also a situation where the reason he's able to do such quality work is the Wachowski siblings were able to put together a fight team and get their act, get their cast for long enough to drill the hell out of them on the fight choreography, and get them into shape, and get them to know the fight scenes through pure muscle memory, which made everything look so good, even though there were very few trained martial artists in some of the major fight scenes in the movie. So, the other, probably what could have been for the casting, before we get too far into the 
film itself was Jet Li was originally offered the role of Deacon Frost and opted to do Lethal Weapon 4 instead. Honestly, I kind of wish that we'd gotten Jet Li for Deacon Frost. I could see why he made the decision. I don't know how good Jet Li's English was at the time, and the role in Lethal Weapon 4, the majority of his dialogue is in Chinese, and otherwise the role requires a lot of basically being physically being imposing in fight scenes and looking intimidating, which Jet Li can certainly do very well. Whereas for to pull off the role of Deacon Frost requires not just a significant degree of I mean, there's not just a fluency in English to pull off the dialogue, but it requires a certain degree of, for lack of a better term, charisma isn't quite the right word. It's a degree of lack of frells given. A casualness, a degree of laid-back, I almost describe it as a slacker malevolence, which I don't know that Jet Li could have necessarily pulled off. And which, by contrast, Stephen Dorff does fantastically well in this film. The film itself again, follows Blade, who is hunting vampires in an unnamed city. It's implied to be New York, but it is known just as, a, as the city. And dealing with a conflict within the vampire hierarchy in that city. In the course of this hunting, he ends up encountering a woman named Karen Jensen, who is a hematologist. After she is attacked by a vampire who he torches after crashing a vampire rave club in a very spectacular and impressively done scene at the beginning of the film. Before Blade stakes Karen, or kills her, he decides to take her back to his lair and tries to, let's much, to some degree, somewhat cure her, or at least see if he can try and save her. And here she introduced, introduced Abraham Whistler and the truth of the world, that vampires lurk underneath society, and basically rule pretty much everything. And from here we get to the meat of the plot with the character of Deacon Frost attempting to resurrect the blood god of La Magra in order to basically rule the world because I believe hum humans should be effectively treated as cattle for vampires, while the older guard of vampires feel that we should keep the status quo, lay low, Things are working fine as it is. Why walk the boat? Coming to this film from a background of tabletop role-playing games, it's particularly of interest because I am somewhat familiar with the tabletop role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade, which was originally published by White Wolf and was kind of a big thing at this time. It in turn took cues from Anne Frank's Vampire Chronicles novels, which I admit I am not as familiar with. But there are significant concepts here which feel like they map. The number of vampire clans we see here, while they do not vis visibly map with the vampire clans from Vampire the Masquerade, there are equal number, about 12. While the weaknesses are different, um, in Vampire the Masquerade there's no silver weakness. Sufficient quote-unquote bludgeoning damage, it usually refers to um, bullet kind of damage and decapitation and stuff can kill vampires, and being out in the sun can kill vampires. Wooden stakes paralyze them, they don't kill them. So, theoretically, you stake a vampire, stick it out in the sunlight, and let it broil. But anyway. And, aside from this, one of the significant power struggles in the vampire role-playing game is between the Sabbat and the Camarilla. The, the Camarilla being, effectively, the old guard vampires who don't want to rock the boat, who want to lay low and keep things as they are and run things behind the scenes, 
while the Sabbat want to openly rule the world. Forget the masquerade and treat humans as cattle. So it is somewhat of interest here coming to Vampire the Ma coming to Blade or rewatching Blade from having a background of now more familiarity with Vampire the Masquerade, of seeing sort of the mapping between the old Vanguard Vampire Council as the Camarilla and with Deacon Frost representing the, the Sabbat and in many ways having some of the common traits of the Sabbat, who also, for that matter, are effectively one of the antagonist, main antagonist groups in Vampire the Masquerade, with the exception of the even older ancient vampires, which kind of actually become antagonist figures in the next two films. The film's fight scenes themselves are very well done and very interestingly done. The choreography is good. Wesley Snipes is a good martial artist, and he has a good fight team working around him, which works really well with him in those scenes. And so we get a whole bunch of really well done fight scenes and really neatly done choreography for those scenes, which makes Blade look good and which sells his opponents as threats. Wesley Snipes does not have the Steven Seagal problem where he refuses to be hit in the fight choreography, where he refuses to take a beating in the fight choreography. Blade gets clobbered. Um, he gets knocked out and captured. It's when the plot requires it, but still, it's something that would never happen to Steven Seagal in a Steven Seagal movie. Chris Christopherson also works incredibly well as the character of Abraham Whistler. He has a very good grizzled nature, but he feels like he keeps up well with Blade in terms of that perhaps when he's younger, he certainly could have kept up with him to a certain degree, not in the martial arts front, but in other fronts. But now that he's older and gotten injured and has been forced to slow down, he can help keep Blade in the field fairly well. And it works really nicely. They have a great crim and Christopherson and Snipes have excellent chemistry. I also really appreciate how the character of Karen Jensen is written. She is a female character who is not a love interest for Blade, and she is, while she is not operating at the same speed as Blade, but she's also effectively still somewhat mostly human, as opposed to Blade, who is a who is a daywalker, who is a half vampire, half human. It's kind of his significant trait is his mother was bit while she was pregnant with him. That's kind of how the film actually opens. And this is why he has all the vampires' physical strength and speed and agility, but none of their weaknesses, which is why he's able to be a much more effective vampire hunter than most humans. But anyway, while she, while the character of Karen Jensen is not as physically effective in combat as Blade is, he's still she's still able to take care of herself. She takes out a few vampires on her own. She is intelligent. She is a very smart scientist and contributes to Blade's vampire hunting in her own ways without necessarily having to be prompted to do this. This is her work on her own volition that helps. She's It's a very well-written character, and I really appreciate that. I also appreciate that really most of the protagonists of this film exception of Whistler, are people of color. Wesley Snipes and Bushy White are both black. When There's a su brief supporting character who we meet who is a person who sells the ingredients for Blade Serum that helps keep his vampiric cravings under control, who is also a person of color. 
And the majority of the vampires we see are generally white people, which is also nicely done. It, it, it gives the film, I wouldn't quite say a neo black exploitation vibe, but it takes the it takes some of those cues that films like Shaft drew on in the right way, in terms of a in terms of I guess we call it systemic prejudice embodied through, uh, in this case, the vampire power structure representing systemic prejudice and privilege against African Americans. And with the African Americans we see in the film working as sort of the resistance and working to undermine that, and and take and fight the power effectively, which is nice. It's a nicely done thing, and I appreciate them doing that. And I don't know if people noticed that now, noticed that then, but it certainly gives the film a certain degree of resonance that sticks around now. The one thing that doesn't stick around, doesn't hold up over the long term, though, unfortunately, is the film special effects. There are Toward the end, a bunch of CGI effects they use, which don't work very well. There are some effects that work. The vampire's dusting is very nicely done. It feels like a prototype or an embellishment of the dusting effects done in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Except it's a more ashy, juicy dusting effect. Where things fall apart is, later in the film, one of the weapon supports that Blade gets from Karen is that she discovers that vampire blood explodes when a particular chemical anticoagulant called EDTA, which is a real anticoagulant drug, is put in contact with it. And she whips up a bunch of this for Blade to use as a weapon. And when the vampires get stabbed with this, they swell up and then explode. For some of them, they for some of these shots, we do a practice which works nicely. They and when they do practical effects for this, it works fairly well. With it's it's what I wish we would have gotten in the American live action Fist of the North Star movie, which is a topic for another time. But there are other shots here where CGI is used for blood splat for the explosion in the blood. Uh also later in the film when Deacon Frost has partially gotten the power of Lamagra within him. And he is cut, and he commands his, he wills his blood to bring his body back together. And again, the effect doesn't look good. It looks like it looks terrible. It's like PlayStation One level fluid effects, and it's, the technology wasn't quite there yet. I almost wish we'd get a redone version of this movie, or at least like a remastered release, where they went through and just redid the fluid effects, the computer fluid effects. See if they can make that work better. Leave the practical effects alone. Just redo all the computerized fluid effects. So, this film did very well. Film's total domestic gross was $70 million. I don't have an actual production budget information, really. Uh, the closest I have is a there's an estimated box office of $75 million on IMDb. But we don't have a similar figure on Box Office Mojo. Now, our rule of thumb is that a film's box office needs to be twice that of its budget in order for it to make a profit. Now, we don't quite have that. With the We go with the $45 million figure from just the box office. This is not including home video. This is not including foreign. Once we get into foreign box office, we start looking a little better. 
and we get a budget, we get a take of worldwide around $131 million. Looking better. But where this film also did really well is it did great on home video. I remember watching this film a bunch on home video when I was a kid in high school when it first came out on Blu-ray. This fact, I believe this is one of the earliest films on Blu-ray. And I also remember seeing this film along with The Matrix being heavily used to market Blu-ray. Not Blu-ray, but a DVD, rather, as a medium, as a way for displaying your movies. And so if you're one of these early initial adopters on DVD players, you're picking up cool movies to show off, Blade's a great one to go with. And it kind of makes sense because the next Blade film didn't come out until 2002. So that's four years later. So that would kind of map with, okay, it's taking time for this to kind of build up legs and get a and get enough money in to make it worthwhile to put out on DVD or Blu-ray. Not to be weird, but to, get, to, to greenlight a sequel, and home video would do that. In the meantime, this film certainly helped Wesley Snipes' career. Wesley Snipes, after this, I remember seeing him in Art of War, in among a few other movies, basically a lot more action movies after Blade came out, or getting into action movies after Blade came out, setting up that he is a action movie hero. So, the other thing of note which, which we need to discuss is how this film fared in the Greatest Science Fiction tom Film Tournament. I will say that it did not reach the actual round of voting. However, it did have a significant number of people who actually saw it. The votes skewed more towards the average category, with 14 voter, with about over half going ab above average or average, but the majority going into the average column. And I sort of get that. It's a good action movie. It is a, it is the film which really kick-started the superhero movie as a genre of film and helped resurrect things somewhat from the doldrums that the Batman movies had gone into, although it did not wear its superhero-ness on its sleeve, which to a certain degree set a trend for later superhero films as we got into the X-Men series of movies. But it did fairly well, and I do enjoy this film. It is a, it is not a guilty pleasure because it implies that there's guilt in enjoying it. It is a excellently done film, and I do enjoy it immensely. And I do recommend if you have not seen Blade, it is definitely worth a watch. So again, next month we will be covering Blade Two, and once again returning to Guillermo del Toro as he takes over the direction of this series. In the meantime. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on iTunes or in Stitcher or Google Play or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And also check out some of the other podcasts through the Bureau 42 Podcast Network, including the Comic Book Physics Podcast, hosted by Blaine Dowler, and the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, all are, which are excellent, the 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown Podcast has, as of this recording, wrapped up. If you have not listened to it yet, I would certainly recommend going back in that feed and listening to it from the beginning. It is a very well done podcast and reading along if you feel so inclined. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next month.